Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Are you caring for an aging loved one? Are you a senior searching for answers? Welcome to Senior Care Live, a program dedicated to you. Providing information, education, and resources for seniors and their caregivers. And now, America's Senior Care Consultant, Steve Keeker. Hello and welcome to Senior Care Live. I'm Steve Keeker, your Senior Care Consultant, and I really appreciate you tuning in. We have an excellent program for you here today. My friend and special guest in studio, Dr. Jeffrey Burns. He's the co-director of the KU Alzheimer's Research Center. And Dr. Burns, welcome back to Senior Care Live. Well, thank you, Steve. It's great to be here. All right. And it's been way too long. So we're going to have to do this more frequently. So <laughs> been a while. So, uh, all right. So if you'd like to reach out to Dr. Burns and the phenomenal team at the, again, the KU Alzheimer's Research Center. Here's the phone number, 913-588-0555. You can also go online at kualzheimer.org. And let me just say this, if you're not located in the Kansas City area, later on in the program, we'll let you know how to identify local resources available in your area. So just stay tuned, but you're going to, I promise you, you're going to learn a lot today. Uh, So Dr. Burns, let's start off with uh, kind of a 101 level question. What is Alzheimer's disease and what actually causes that cognitive disruption? Yeah, so Alzheimer's is a progressive brain disease that affects memory and planning and organization or executive function. And in the process of Alzheimer's disease, we see uh, cell death in certain areas of the brain. Mm. And the big question that you're asking is what what causes that? We know know that cell death is associated with the buildup of something called amyloid plaques and something called neurofibrillary tangles. Um, so we see those increase in the brain as we see the loss of brain cells. So um, there's a there's a physical presence of something that's not supposed to be there. That's right. Okay. Yep. We see that build up. Now the big argument we have is do those cause the disease or are they the byproduct of something else causing the disease? And so your question, what what's causing it, is still uh, a matter of debate and sort of scientific, um, you know, questions. Uh, and we're we're trying to get to the root of that, but. We know it's a progressive brain disease, and it tends to be seen in older adults. So that's a chicken and the egg situation. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so and, and so let's assume that if the if the plaques and tangles cause Alzheimer's or, or cause this disruption in the cell death, et cetera, then the question is, you know, can we then stop the buildup 
or or you prevent that in the first place or maybe decrease the buildup over time and so but that may not be it at all it when maybe a reverse where it's just a, a byproduct of it that's right if it's a byproduct of it then yeah we may be chasing the wrong target but that's exactly what we're doing is we're yeah. targeting those those proteins that build up and trying to prevent them from building up and seeing does that, I'm sure we'll talk about this more yeah. later, but does that uh, impact the patient in a positive way? And uh, still a matter of debate. Okay. And that's why we're doing all these tests, these clinical trials all over the country. That's right. Yeah. There's a huge effort all over the country, all over the world. All over the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Uh, and so here's another one. Uh, what is the difference between Alzheimer's disease and dementia? Because I hear these two terms intermingled and they probably shouldn't be, I would assume. Yeah, well, so the, this, I'm glad you're starting with this question because yeah. this is the number one question that we get is what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? And um, dementia is a really broad umbrella term that simply means you know someone has cognitive issues or memory and thinking issues that are interfering with their daily function, interfering with their ability to do the things they've always done. So it's a syndrome um, that is just you know that. Now, the, the next question that we ask is, what's the cause of that dementia? Yeah. And that's where Alzheimer's comes in. It's the number one cause of dementia. So it's actually a specific cause of dementia and the number one cause, accounting for about two-thirds of all dementia. So that's why we often use the terms, you know, synonymously okay. um, and confuse people. But Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. Okay. And that's how I've heard it explained, uh, I, I think, from you and you know, several of the presentations that I've sat in on, it's, it's a type of dementia. That's right. And that's kind of a, an easy way to, uh, to look at that. To think of it, yeah. So we first, you know, we want to recognize when there's dementia, when somebody's having these kind of cognitive issues, and then we want to ask what's the cause, and we have a process for diagnosing it. But what we're doing in that process is predicting whether or not somebody has amyloid plaques and tangles in their brain that that's associated with their dementia. And that, that's the definition of Alzheimer's, the okay. plaques and tangles that we were just talking about. And if you don't have the plaques and tangles, then it's probably some other form of dementia. That's right. Which is my next question. How many forms are there? I, you know, I've read things where it, it, like 70 or 75 uh, forms of dementia. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but how, how many forms are there now? There are a lot. I, don't, I can't put a number on it, yeah. but there's dozens. Okay. Um, yeah. There's actually, you know, four that are, you know, the most common. Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's, as we've, t as we've talked about, is yeah. number one. There's another form called dementia with Lewy bodies, mm. which looks a lot like Parkinson's disease. Okay. Um, and, uh, and Alzheimer's kind of intermixed. There's vascular dementia or stroke-related dementia where people have strokes or vascular injury that leads to cognitive issues that mm -hmm. interfere with daily function. Um, and then there's something called frontotemporal dementia where we see a lot of uh, social and behavior and language problems based on, you know, where in the brain we're seeing the degeneration occur. Mm. And uh, so those are kind of the big four um, that we think a lot about and see a lot of patients with. But yeah. Alzheimer's by far dominates, uh, you know, as the number one cause of dementia. Okay. And what is the average age of someone with Alzheimer's disease? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Or maybe I'd probably there's say a range. There's I, a there's a big range. I'd probably say the average age is you know between seventy and seventy five. Okay, but we of course have a big range, and we can see early onset. We can see late onset. So what? Uh, okay, so can you have Alzheimer's disease at a younger age? And if so, you you talked about early onset. You know, how young are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, in in certain forms or some genetic forms, which are really rare but where it runs in the family, 
we may see the onset in the 40s. I've seen one patient mm. in his late 30s oh develop Alzheimer's. It's really rare. And I've heard of a report of one patient at the age of 29 being diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Oh, now, my gosh. Incredibly rare. Um, but, you know, that tells you it can occur early. Um, in my clinic where I see patients, I often see people in their 50s. Um, mm. And uh, so we can see it young. That can, we consider that early onset under yeah. the age of 65. Um, and then we also see late onset. So we see people in their 90s develop it. Wow. Um, now, one of the things we've learned and suspect is that they may, they may be different. We call them both Alzheimer's, the early onset forms and the late onset form. Um, but uh, they may actually be different diseases. We, we, you know, when we look at the brain under the microscope, there's some important differences. People with late onset Alzheimer's have, have a little bit fewer of the plaques and tangles, and they have more other, other pathologies, other okay. things like vascular uh, changes that are more prominent. And so we, we do study and think about um, early onset versus late onset, which is why you'll hear us often talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so I help families and individuals find the right senior care community. The, the youngest client that I've ever worked with, uh, she was, I think, 48 when she was diagnosed and 49 when we helped her husband with placement. And, uh, and then and I think hers was just really rapidly declining. Is, does early onset Alzheimer's, is there a, a quicker decline on that or is, or is that just very individualized? Well, yeah, everything's individualized, but okay. I'd say on average, early onset moves more quickly than late onset. And that, okay. that's something we expect, um, but it's not always true. But yeah, that the relationship between the speed with which somebody declines can be predicted by age of onset to some degree. So earlier onset, younger onset tends to be a more sort of aggressive mm -hmm. course versus the late onset, um, which tends to move a little bit slower. Okay. And my unfortunately, my wife's best friend's mother uh, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I think about forty nine or fifty. Wow! And uh, uh, that was just that just devastated her entire family. Yep. Uh, they felt like they were robbed of a lot of good years. So it, it's a uh, it, it's a serious disease. It's uh, just impacts so many people. Uh, as far as statistics, uh, what are uh, some of the numbers uh, of statistics as far as you know the number of people with Alzheimer's today, and then uh, maybe projected uh, into the future? Because I, I know the numbers are disturbingly large. Yeah, they are, and we need, to, and that's why we're doing so much to yeah. try to fight this disease. Um, so it's about six million Americans who have Alzheimer's right now. Okay. Um, I think the better way to think of it is about one in nine people over the age of 65 have it, mm. which is amazing. But if you move to the 85 and older, it's about one in three people over the age of 85. Okay. Um, and so as you get older, it, it is just increasingly more common and your risk goes up um, as you get older and move into these older age groups. Do we have any idea why these numbers seem to be exploding? It just the numbers seem to get larger every year. Yeah, I, you know, the primary driver of that is we have an aging population, which is a good thing. We're living longer, sure. healthier lives. And because the sheer number of people in that older age group, 85 and older, 65 and older, is going up, we're seeing, along with it, an increase in the number of people with Alzheimer's. And we go one one in nine to one in three. Yep. Oh, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the good news, we're living longer. The bad news is uh, Alzheimer's is more and more prevalent as we, as we age. So, exactly. All right. We'll have more with Dr. Burns coming up next. But first, the Senior Care Live question of the week. Alzheimer's disease is different than dementia. Is that statement true or false? What do you think? 
You're listening to Senior Care Live on the Senior Care Broadcasting Network. For more information, visit SeniorCareLive.com. We'll have more with Steve coming up next. Welcome back. You're listening to Senior Care Live on the Senior Care Broadcasting Network. For more information, go to SeniorCareLive.com. All right, back to the Senior Care Live question of the week. Alzheimer's disease is different than dementia. Is that statement true or false? And the answer is... False. The answer is false. And Dr. Burns, why is that false? Well, it's false because Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. It's actually a form of dementia. So, um, so yes, it is false because of that. Okay. All right. Excellent. Excellent. We're here with Dr. Jeffrey Burns. He's the co-director of the KU Alzheimer's Resource Center. You can reach out to Dr. Burns and the phenomenal team at the KU Alzheimer's Research Center at 913-588-0555. Or you can go online at KUAlzheimer.org. And don't forget, if you're not located in the Kansas City metro area, later on in the program, we'll let you know how to identify local resources available in your area. All right. So, Dr. Burns, uh, this is just, I think this is a question that a lot of folks may have. How are Alzheimer's patients being affected by COVID-19, if, if at all? Yeah. Well, I mean, th- they are affected and they've been sort of disproportionately affected by COVID-19 because they're, they're a vulnerable group, for one. So, they're, yep. uh, so you know, they're much more vulnerable to, to COVID-19. And then the the other is um, they tend to be in nursing facilities, mm-hmm. or, you know. So uh, so the impact one the the disease spreads pretty quickly when you're in a yeah. in a facility, yeah. and so we know that happened early, especially um, in the in the pandemic. Um, but but the response to COVID nineteen having to basically you know shut things down yeah. or limit uh, visitors really had an impact in terms of the social isolation. Um, on these patients. And we know social interactions and engagement with others is important um, for patients. Um, and, and, you know, I know uh, that we, we see it. I know our social workers saw it, mm-hmm. a big increase in sort of psychosocial support needs yeah. for these patients who are isolated and um, symptoms of depression worsened and things like that. So, yeah, COVID-19, you know, specifically, does it have an impact in a different way on the patient than what we understand now? They're just a little. They're more vulnerable as a yep. group, and um, and then that you know those sort of social aspects are very important in the in the Alzheimer's patient group. And that social isolation just really caused the damage. So that's more, like you said, you know, psychosocial versus medical. So obviously, people who are. Uh, older and so they're generally in that category but you know with COPD or CHF uh, diabetic uh, obesity all of those things medically uh, uh, put you at more risk but uh, with uh, with Alzheimer's and dementia uh, patients in assisted living and long-term care just that isolation mm-hmm. I've just heard it reported over and over that they just felt like their decline really accelerated because of that social isolation and that was uh, a really negative effect of that so yeah yeah very much so let's uh, let's move on to the signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. So there are a lot of people out there who say, you know, 
I've, I've noticed that my mom or my dad or myself, uh, you know, I haven't been quite as sharp as I used to be and getting a little forgetful. You know, I lost my key. I misplaced my keys the other day. Do I have Alzheimer's? So I, I think some people may have something to worry about and some folks don't have anything to worry about. So how, how, what are the signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, so the, the sort of typical early signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's are, you know, new problems, new problems, stress that, okay. uh, in memory, so short-term memory, and then in what we call executive function, which is planning and organizing. Um, okay. And so with, with respect to memory, what we see is, again, new issues for an individual, not that I've always misplaced my car keys yeah, or yeah. My, my cell phone or my glasses, yeah. but... Um, now I'm. You know, they may be losing tax documents when they were obsessed about that before, mm-hmm. or uh, repeating themselves is a really strong sign of the short-term memory. Mm. Um, asking the same question over and over, like they haven't heard the answer, or telling the same story over and over. Not that not the typical way. Maybe somebody likes to repeat stories, right. but now they're they're t- you know repeating themselves in a new way. Those are really strong signs of the short-term memory problems that we see early in Alzheimer's. And then on the organizing planning, the sort of executive function, it's mm-hmm. maybe following a recipe, um, you know, make it basically judgment and problem solving skills, try to sort of sort through complicated things and, and, uh, and you know, you know make, it, make a big decision can become more problematic. So um, those are the kinds of things. They can be pretty subtle, um, but they're, they're, for that individual, they're new and they're sort of noticeable, and they're uh, beginning to interfere with the, that person's ability to, hmm. to, you know, do their usual things. That's really, really helpful. Just the fact that you said this is something that is new. It's it's not normal for this person. And so that's when you should perk up and start paying attention to that. So, that's right. Okay. So so my son, one of my boys, we have triplet boys, and uh, one of them's 20, and he said, hey, Dad, I, you know, I lost my keys. He was out fishing on this rocky bank of a lake. So I'm out here with my metal detector. We're out there for an hour. We were eaten alive by mosquitoes and, you know, all the stuff. Never found it. He goes fishing the next week, and he goes, Dad, you're going you're gonna to be mad at me. My key was in the tackle box. So he doesn't have Alzheimer's. He's just being a blockhead 20-year-old boy. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, well, that's really good to know. So, yeah. <laughs> so I, all, I, all I could do is laugh at that one. I'm just like, yeah, you got to be kidding me. So anyway, <laughs> so if you suspect that you may have Alzheimer's disease or just like you just so just so clearly said, some of these new issues and and how it impacts your function and your executive you know thought and all of those sort of things. What should you do? And what is your next step? What would you recommend your next step if if you suspect you might have the very early signs and symptoms of, of Alzheimer's? Yeah, I think uh, I mean you know the right first step would be to talk to your doctor. Run it by them and see um, see what they think, um, and hopefully they take take you seriously. Um, and what they they should consider doing is uh, a little bit of testing. They might do it right there in the clinic. Um, and if they are worried after seeing that testing, they would consider doing a brain scan to make sure they're not, you know something like a stroke or something else mm-hmm. hasn't happened. Yeah, um, and maybe some lab work. Um, but I think you start by t- bringing it up with your doctor. And just one other thing is, yeah. if you're worried about yourself, you might check with somebody who knows you really well. Ah. Have they noticed any changes? And hopefully they can be real honest with you. Have they noticed any changes? And I think one of the things we do in our clinic is we sit down with a loved one, you know, the spouse or a child, and we really work hard to make sure somebody comes with them because we like to get that um, sort of perspective 
from the family because that perspective is what can tell us, have they changed? Are we dealing with a new onset of a problem, you know, where somebody's having some problems that they didn't have two years ago, five years ago? Yeah. And that person's probably going to tell the truth or maybe fill in some of the gaps or fill in some of the details that the actual uh, patient or potential patient might May miss. May not know. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Uh, years and years ago, right when I first started senior care consulting, I worked with a super nice lady and she and her mom, every Christmas they made cookies. And and so uh, she, she came back from Denver to Kansas City, worked with her mom, hands her a cup, said, Mom, I need a cup of sugar. And she turns around and she's tending to getting the, all the stuff together. She turned around and her mom was just looking at the cup. Yeah. And, she's, and it, she said, it took my breath away because I realized at that second, my mom didn't know what to do with the cup. And that's her first giant sign that mom had a problem. Right. So, all right, do not go away. We have so much more with Dr. Burns, co-director of the KU Alzheimer's Research Center. We'll be right back. You're listening to Senior Care Live on the Senior Care Broadcasting Network. Have a question? Visit SeniorCareLive.com. Stick around. We'll have more with Steve coming up next. Welcome back. You're listening to Senior Care Live on the Senior Care Broadcasting Network. For podcasts of the program, just visit Senior Care Live, that's L-I-V-E, SeniorCareLive.com, or wherever you get your podcast. My special guest in studio today, Dr. Jeffrey Burns, co-director of the KU Alzheimer's Research Center. You can reach Dr. Burns and the phenomenal team at the KU Alzheimer's Research Center at 913-588-0555, or visit online at KUAlzheimer.com. Dot org, And Dr. Burns, uh, again, it is so great to have you here today. And I know your schedule is jam-packed, so I just want to thank you again for making time for us today on the program. Well, thanks for the invite. <laughs> All right. So uh, uh, can uh, Alzheimer's disease be accurately diagnosed? And just, uh, just a minute ago, you talked about maybe a simple test that your doctor can run uh, in the office and, uh, uh, and maybe talk about how, you know, years ago, I, I think you uh, – it could only be diagnosed after a person had died and then you had to inspect the brain. But now I think we've made some pretty phenomenal advances on that. Yeah, we are. We're making very uh, rapid advances in the area of diagnosis. Um, you know, a lot of that is on the research side, though, still. Okay. Um, and, you know, the way we, we typically diagnose is still get a history, get the story and establish that there's been these, you know, the type of memory changes and changes and organizing and planning and all that go along with it. Um, and then we do, it's very important to, to think about, all right, what, what could be causing this? Um, and when we diagnose Alzheimer's, a lot of what we're doing is ruling out other potential causes. Ah. So making sure somebody hasn't had a stroke by mm-hmm. getting an MRI scan, mm-hmm. doesn't have a tumor in their brain by getting an MRI scan. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at some lab work um, and, you know, to rule out low thyroid or low B12, which can both of those can mm. cause memory issues. Ah, okay. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, mm. yep. And, you know, and sort of working through, uh, uh, you know, some a process where we're ruling out some of the more common things that can influence memory. Um, but And so the diagnosis is really, really dependent currently on yeah. uh, the story, the history. Sort of a low-tech diagnosis is, yeah. is still the predominant way. But we can do a whole lot more now 
um, and we're starting to do that. Um, it's really entering into clinical practice, um, and we can uh, now detect whether or not somebody has amyloid plaques mm. or the tangles in their brain using some really fancy scans, okay. which aren't widely used because they're so expensive. Um, we can also do spinal fluid analysis, which means and requires somebody to have a lumbar puncture, which people don't love that. It's yeah. a pretty straightforward, sure. relatively simple procedure, but um, it's still invasive, so people don't don't love to do that. Right. And then on the horizon, and actually it's here on the research side, it's coming on the in the clinics, in you know where you you'll eventually be able to sit down with your doctor. And, uh, and a blood test will really help guide the diagnosis. I'm not sure it's going to totally replace or make the diagnosis, but uh, a blood test that tells us whether or not or, or indicates to some degree whether or not somebody has amyloid in their brain, um, those, those types of tests are really coming soon. We think in the next one to two years we'll have those to, to be sort of augmenting what we learned from the history and our testing um, and provide us with you know some biological information on what what might be going on in the brain. See, and I had heard about this blood test, and I wasn't sure if that was even available. So it, it's on the research side, and it sounds pretty promising as far as a uh, indicating the the uh, the possibility, I guess. Of yeah, it. exactly. And we're doing it's something we've been doing for a few years. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're investigating it. We're we're beginning to use it on the research side. Um, but it's a, there's a much bigger sort of hurdle to overcome before we start using it on the clinic side, use it, using it in a way that will guide our treatments and our, you know, our diagnoses and prognoses. We're just not quite there yet. Okay. Um, but but it, it's coming. Okay. That is that's very encouraging. Uh, and then at the same time, I don't know if I want to know. <laughs> right. I, I, you know, it, and then all of these uh, DNA, you know, genealogy, ancestry.com, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if that plays any, uh, uh, has a place in this diagnosis. Uh, well, it, it re- actually it does. Does somebody okay. want to know? And, you know, if somebody has memory problems, you know, and we were trying to get to the bottom of it, that's one question, you uh-huh. know, using these these tests. Yeah. But the one you're bringing up is somebody without memory problems. Yeah. If we can learn something about risk or about predicting what's what's to come. We need to be really careful in how we use that information. Yeah. That's something we've studied is how do we disclose it in a responsible way hmm. and how do we do it, you know, in a way that, you know, is sort of actionable. What we the last thing we want to do is create a bunch of angst in someone that oh boy, and yeah. there's nothing they can do about it. Yeah. And so you know, those types of tests are also coming, you know, where we can, you know, determine how how high a risk somebody's at yeah. of developing it. But what we need to make that very powerful is interventions ways that we can reduce the risk for yeah. an individual. So what are we going to do with that information? And so we're actually working furiously on both fronts. Yeah. Can we diagnose early? And can we? what we're talking about now is can we diagnose before the onset of any memory problems? Maybe we can delay the onset yeah. potentially. And, yep. So if we can diagnose before the onset of memory problems, then it's what do we do to delay that onset or hopefully put it off forever by intervening with drugs or lifestyle factors. And that's exactly where the field's headed Okay. All right. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. So uh, that leads me to my next question. How can you reduce your risk for Alzheimer's disease? Well, Is there anything that just all of us can do to just lower that, that risk? Yeah. So and that, that's a perfect question because we think yes. The answer is yes. We're working really hard to prove it um, in, in a variety of ways. But what, what do we recommend for people now? The most evidence um, out there suggests that staying active physically and mentally mm-hmm. is important. 
And so exercising, physical exercise, we believe is a way to reduce one's long-term risk. So get out and walk every day. Yeah. Um, 30 minutes a day, at least, you know, five days a week, we think is, you know, the right amount, but you don't have to get to that to, to have a benefit. If you just get out a couple times a week, we think that's also having an impact. So don't let that threshold scare you. Sure. Um, yep. But exercise, eating right, we think is important. And we think probably the most, uh, the most data exists to support the Mediterranean diet in terms mm-hmm. of brain health. And so that's a healthy diet where um, you're really not restricting how much you eat, but you're shifting your pattern from sort of the Western, typical Western diet to one where we have more fish, more fruits and vegetables, mm-hmm. berries, nuts, and healthy fats like olive oil. Yeah. Um, so Mediterranean diet, good sleep we think is really important, and there's links between that we've learned really in the last decade, hmm. links between poor sleep and things like amyloid in That's the brain. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So we think you know sleeping well – uh, sleep, good sleep hygiene, going to bed at the same time, getting up at the same time is mm-hmm. important. Um, and then, you know, reducing stress and social engagement and not getting isolated and things like that, which we've talked a little bit yeah. about. Um, and so all these things add up to good, you know, good brain health practices. And, uh, and you know, this is what exactly the kind of thing we're working on, these things, trying to understand how they relate to brain health and then try to package them and get people to do them more. Um, and those are the those are you know one big angle of what the KU Alzheimer's Disease Research Center is working on. Okay, and so one thing that popped into my head just good sleep. Mm. Uh, so this is to all the folks out there with sleep apnea, and they're like, oh, I'm not going to deal with the CPAP. Well, guess what? You need to go get the CPAP because first of all, you you reduce uh, a very uh, high risk of uh, atrial fibrillation. By the way, that could lead to a heart attack or a stroke. So there's one. Number two, now. We just learned that you can decrease your risk of Alzheimer's. So quit kicking that can down the road and go get your CPAP. <laughs> yeah, good point. Thank you for making that. Get that. That's something we always think about with every patient with memory issues is yeah. kind of screen for sleep, the, the possibility of sleep apnea. If you got it, you really want to be working on taking care of it or treating yeah. it. And I, yeah, some people just cannot tolerate the the CPAP. Yep. But yep. do your best um, because it's good for your brain. And I remember what you told me, and it's it's been a while back, but you said sitting is the new smoking. Yeah. So that, that sedentary, just not lack of movement, I guess. Yes. I, the, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Yep. Sitting is the new smoking. I love that phrase. Yeah. And it just reminds us that, yeah, bit just kind of sitting around. And a lot of us work jobs where we're just sitting in front of the computer, and I'm one of them. Um, and so you really need to try to break up your day and get some steps in um, and then get that exercise in, too. Yeah, absolutely. And so how is Alzheimer's disease being treated today? Well, we do have uh, two drugs okay. that we use routinely, two classes. Um, and so, you know, I think it's important to think of Alzheimer's as treatable. We can't cure it, um, but the drugs that we've been using now for a good 20 to 30 years are important and they help slow the decline. And the drugs are Denepazil or Aricept, mm-hmm. uh, the brand name, and then Memantine or Namenda. Okay. Um, and then there's a couple cousins of Aricept as well. So, uh, But those two drugs together we use in patients with moderate Alzheimer's. And in the earliest stages of Alzheimer's, we use the Denepazil alone. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that's the typical treatment for people with Alzheimer's. And is, are those two drugs, or one or the other, or both, are they pretty effective? 
Yeah, well, that's what we argue about. They don't, people don't bounce back from, from the drugs. Sure. Uh, you but just slow the decline. Slow the decline, yeah. which is not the most, you know, uh, compelling argument, but, and we're working really hard to do more. But nonetheless, they're important drugs that, that we need to um, take advantage of. Excellent, excellent. And if you're not located in the Kansas City area, coming up next, we'll let you know how to identify local resources available in your area. You're listening to Senior Care Live on the Senior Care Broadcasting Network. To contact Steve or a guest on his show, visit SeniorCareLive.com. We'll have more coming up. Welcome back. You're listening to Senior Care Live on the Senior Care Broadcasting Network. Have a question? Visit SeniorCareLive.com. Today, our special guest in studio, Dr. Jeffrey Burns. He's the co-director of the KU Alzheimer's Research Center. You can reach out to Dr. Burns and the phenomenal team at the KU Alzheimer's Research Center. Here's the phone number. Write it down. It's 913-588-0555. Or you can visit online at KUAlzheimer.org. And uh, Dr. Burns, let's talk about where Alzheimer's treatment is headed. And can you discuss what future treatments might look like? Yeah. So um, we just talked about the two drugs that have been around for a while, um, and they're important. Um, Just last year, a brand new drug was approved for Alzheimer's disease, and it was the first drug in 18 years to be approved. Wow. And we've been working really hard this last 18 18 years. And so um, that drug's called Aduhelm. Okay. And... um, you know, it it's a uh, it's an important step. We're not sure it's necessarily in the right direction. And if you if you've heard about this drug, you've probably seen along with it that there's a lot of controversy. Okay. Um, so the drug was approved uh, in a sort of limited way by the FDA uh, based on its ability to actually remove amyloid from the brain. Oh wow! So we actually it's an infusion drug. It's very expensive. It comes with a little bit of risk that is you know could be serious. Um, and it actually works really well to remove amyloid from the brain. But the big question that that we haven't proven definitively is how big an impact does that have on the patient? Does yeah. the patient get better? Does the patient do better over time? And that is what we're still debating. There's some evidence that they might do a little bit better over time, um, but there's also some evidence that they may they may not get any better so over okay. time. And so that's what we're still debating. Uh, that's why it's not being widely used. Um, and in fact, we're basically using it only in the setting of research uh, currently right now. Okay. And Medicare has agreed to pay for it, but only when we're using it in the setting of a research study. So we're in a transition period where, you know, the good news is, hey, we made a big advance. We've got a new drug. Um, but, you know, the bad news is it's not quite proven and we're, we're not really using it uh, widely because we need more data. We need more evidence that it's uh, impactful. And that's really interesting because... That gets back to that chicken and the egg. So if you remove the amyloid, does that cure Alzheimer's or does it have any impact at all? I think that will tend yeah. to start to answer. I don't think it if it definitively answers that question, but I, I think that puts you on the road to answering that question. Oh, absolutely. And this is we've been working for decades to test this idea. <laughs> yeah. And now we've t- we've really tested it in a lot of different ways. And it 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 you know, at best it may slow the disease, um, but we it's not a cure. And that was something five years ago we were hope, hopeful that maybe this is a cure. Okay. Um, I think this may be a part of the cure in the okay. future. We're going to figure that out in the yeah. next couple of years. Um, but it's not the you know magic bullet. 
but it may be part of sort of a cocktail approach where yep. we need to go after this disease from different angles, and this may be one of the important angles going after amyloid. And just like with AIDS, treatment of AIDS, uh, that used to be a guaranteed death sentence. And now it's not because you have a cocktail of different medications and you can live a very long life. Uh, and, and hopefully we can get to that point with Alzheimer's. If we can't completely cure it, maybe we can help a person live with that and not be so debilitated. Exactly. So, okay. And so, Dr. Burns, I know that you and the team at the KU Alzheimer's Research Center conduct studies every single day. I would like to put out a call to action to all of our listeners uh, participating in Alzheimer's studies and clinical trials. And uh, KU Alzheimer's Disease Center or Research Center is one of 33 certified test locations or trial locations. Is that correct? Yeah, we're one of uh, the... National Institute of Aging, sort of designated Alzheimer's disease research centers. Okay. And yes, there's 33 in the country. Okay. And so if some of our listeners, obviously thousands of our listeners are outside of the Kansas City metro area, where can they go to uh, basically you know, get information on Alzheimer's uh, locally and then maybe look into participating in some of these trials? Well, great. I'm so glad you're emphasizing this because, yeah, fighting Alzheimer's is about, you know, the community and the community being a part of these efforts. It's not just scientists in labs. We need you. We need you to be on our team. We need and volunteers. We for need volunteers. Yeah. And that's the only way we can move the field forward. And so this is so important. And really, that slows us down more than anything else is finding people to participate in these trials. And so I'd recommend, you know, look and see, is there a NIA, National Institute of Aging, Alzheimer's Disease Research Center in your area. There's 33 around the country. There's other places that are doing research as well. There's doctors' offices that might be doing Alzheimer's research. Um, and you know, to sort of figure that out, I, you know, a good place to start is the Alzheimer's Association. Okay. They have great resources online, and they could you could call at, at one of their offices, and they could uh, potentially point you in the right direction. And they have local chapters all, all around the country. They do. Yeah. Yep. So you could get information from them. They also have a trial match program, something called uh, Alzheimer's Association Trial Match Program. So if you're really interested in research, you could check that out. And then if you want to do your own homework, I think going to clinicaltrials.gov, G-O-V, clinicaltrials.gov is a good place to start because every clinical trial is registered in that database and you can search it and you can see where things are happening and kind of what stage the trials are in. Um, and so there's a lot of information there if you want to, you know, sort of dig around and do your homework. Okay. And do we have enough diversity in trial participants? Oh, that's – so the short answer is no. No. And we, okay. And we're working really hard, and we're seeing a big increase in, um, in diversity in trials because of these efforts. Uh, but we need people from, from all walks of life, from all races and uh, cultures. And, um, sure. and so – you know, it, it's so important. And the last thing we want is a new drug that only treats, you know, white men. A certain group. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Or, yeah. So we need, we need dr- our drugs and we need to prove that they're effective and very for diverse. Yep. For yeah. everybody. And so I, I recall, I, and that I remember a lot of stuff that you tell me. So, <laughs> uh, and one of the things that uh, it caught me off guard a little bit, and then it made total sense. You said, you know, every trial, for every trial that fails, we're not uh, we're not upset about that. We consider that a win because now we know what doesn't work, and then that will guide us to our next step. And so we consider that important yeah. or valuable. Yeah, they're the building blocks. Failure is the building blocks for you know success, and it hurts. It's painful. These trials we put years, we put sometimes decades into them of our lives, and uh, and more often than not, they're they they quote unquote fail. 
Um, but that we learn from that and we, it helps us sort of guide the future, our future efforts. And, um, so yeah, so even if you're participating in a trial that where we learned the drug didn't work, you're still helping move the field forward. Absolutely. And, and one thing that you had mentioned, uh, again, is that someone in one of these trials, one of these trials will be successful and you will have participated in curing Alzheimer's disease. That just gave me goosebumps. That. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah. So the first patient cured of Alzheimer's is going to be in a clinical trial. That's where it's going to happen. Um, and that's the only place it can happen. So, um, so yeah, so we don't, you know, the trials and the drugs we're testing, we don't know if they work. We don't know if they're the cure, but that's how we figure it out. And as far as just concluding the, the program here today, and again, I sure appreciate you coming in today. Uh, do you think there will be a cure for Alzheimer's disease in my lifetime, maybe in the next 20, 25, 30 years? Yeah, I'm, I'm very optimistic. Uh, actually, I, I don't think it's a question of if, I think it's a question of when. Of when, yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, and it's going to be an approach that it's probably not, you know, it's not a single magic bullet. It's going to be an approach where we're going after the disease and reducing risk from multiple angles. That makes sense. That makes so much sense. Thank you so much for being here today. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you and all the great information you've shared with our listeners. Oh, thank you for the invite. It's great to be here. All right. I'm your host, Steve Keeker, and I wish you grace and peace. May God bless you and your family on this day and always. Join me next week right here on Senior Care Live. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.